We're in a series called Seven, and we are going through the seven churches of Revelation, um, penned by John, uh, the words of Jesus to the churches, and, and we believe that it's just a applying in some really, really unique ways, and we're excited for it. So our text today is going to be in chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 18. So uh, if you have a Bible this morning, you can go ahead and turn there with us. Uh, if you don't have one, we do have some hardcover ones there in the seat pockets in front of you. We should be roughly on page 1029. There's a few stragglers out there that are like a little thinner and numbered differently, but you can kind of find there. It's also going to be on the screen as well. Um, so once again, that's Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. And if you wouldn't mind, if you're willing and able this morning to stand with me, for the reading of God's word. We're going to read it together. Revelation chapter 2, starting verse 18. Providence here, the word of the Lord. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual morality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual morality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works and I will strike her children dead and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give of each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. Just want to say we're so glad that you're with us this morning. Um, and if it is your first time, I want to say thanks for making us a part of your weekend. We're glad that you came uh, to church this morning. My name is Court, and I'm one of the pastors here. And like Eric said, we've been walking through this uh, sermon series called Seven for about four weeks now. So we kind of have landed uh, in about the middle way through this series as we're walking through all of the letters to the seven churches. And so I wanted to do a quick recap. And then just in case you didn't notice, and this is totally providential, didn't plan this, I get to preach about Jezebel on Mother's Day. <laughs> All right, listen, you can take that up with the Lord. I just want to say I didn't plan on that happening, but, uh, you know, what a chipper sermon we're going to get to talk about. So glad you're here. But uh, doing a quick, a quick recap. So we've gone through the three churches so far. We've had uh, Ephesus, which is the church that was uh, biblically faithful but lost her love. Smyrna, the slandered church that God encouraged and knew and saw their struggles, the impoverished church that the Lord uh, encouraged to be faithful and to endure. And then last week, Pergamum, which is the church that had false teachers that had invaded. And, and in some ways, uh, Pergamum and Thyatira, they, they paired together well because there's also a false teaching element to this church in Thyatira that Jesus is confronting. But uh, there's a particular teacher that he calls out here. He doesn't call her by name, but he calls her by, a, by an anti, uh, uh, 
a type or a symbol from the Old Testament. And so there's kind of a pairing off here that's going to happen between this sermon and last week's sermon. And so we're going to tackle this idea of the woman Jezebel in Thyatira, what it means, what it means for us, how we might uh, move forward and also heed the warnings of Jesus. And then I have a little portion towards the end just to talk a little bit to moms about what you can glean out of this text maybe on Mother's Day, even though it seems like it'd be antithetical. So before we do that, though, uh, if you'll bow your heads with me, and let's pray. Let's ask the Spirit to speak to us through his word. Father, we're, we're so humbled and grateful that this Sunday we get to come to your word and we get to come with our ears open, our hearts open, our hands open. God, would you now speak to us and and do so clearly and do so convincingly, compellingly. God, we, we ask that in each and every circumstance that's represented in this room that, that your word would be an illuminating light to the path that's, that sits before us and that we wouldn't stumble around in the dark and instead your word would be able to bring things clearly to our remembrance, not only that have happened to us but also that are happening currently in our lives, Lord, that we might be faithful to you. Pray for all the moms in the room, Lord, that this weekend would be a great blessing to them, that they would feel encouraged not only here, but for the rest of the day. And we pray for our children, my God, uh, that we might be faithful in parenting them and loving them and being a, a conduit of your love for our kids. We pray you would bless them and protect them. And for all the moms, I ask that, Lord, help us to give them all the encouragement that they so desperately need and so deserve. We love and trust you, Jesus, and we ask all these things in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Let's start here with Thyatira. Verse 18, Revelation chapter 2. To the angel of the church at Thyatira, write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Jesus introduces himself as the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze. This introduction probably should warn us that he has some intense words to speak, uh, not because he, call, he, he calls himself the son of God, but because he says, I have eyes like a flame of fire, or in other words, I see everything, I know everything. I can see the depths of your soul. I know what's happening on the external, but I also know what's happening on the internal. Jesus has done this a number of times in the first two chapters, but it's just a reminder that Jesus doesn't only know the things that, he, that we see externally, but Jesus sees the intentions of the heart. Jesus sees why we do the things that we do, and he knows why we do the things that we do, not just what we do. And so he's telling Thyatira this. He says, listen, I know what your church looks like on the outside. I know what you look like on the inside. And then he follows that up with, and his feet are like burnished bronze. This is the idea of, and him being able to make correct, righteous judgments according to what he sees. Now this is something that the Bible unapologetically speaks of. Our culture is not too fond of it. It's where God gets to call the balls and strikes on humanity. We don't really like that. We're like, I think God's wrong on what he says uh, is true and right. Uh, I, don't, I don't agree with what God says. The Bible never, uh, never apologizes for that. It just says, this is what's right and wrong. This is what God says is right and wrong. This is how Jesus judges the earth. And then it doesn't actually try to capitulate. It doesn't try to make measuring statements. Like, and then maybe you can appeal later. No never has that, just says this is what Jesus is going to do. And so Jesus stands before Thyatira and says, not only do I know everything about you, but I also can tell you what your judgment will be and that his judgment will be the final word. Now, 
Following that up, though, he starts off with some really good things. I think we have to read through these to really understand Jesus' heart for Thyatira and his commendation of them. Let's read verse 19. I know your works, your love, your faith, your servants, your service, your patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So first thing we know about Thyatira is it seems to be this welcoming church, People are believing, people are loved, people are served. And he says the latter works exceed the first. Things are getting better. Like it's getting better and better, seemingly so. And Jesus says, I know this about you. This would seem to be a place, if you're looking just from an external, you want to be a part of this kind of church. Like it's, it's important we don't rush past this and see. Like Thyatira is a place that you would look at the website and be like, man, it's lively. I like it, you know. You watch a video on Facebook of what's going on. You're like, the sermon seems good. The people seem happy. You know, it seems like they're active, it's growing, uh, even better things are happening in the church. Um, and in one sense, I think it's easy to kind of go to the next part of this text and then just kind of cast it all into a shadow. But I don't think we ought to do that because Jesus willingly and clearly encourages them for certain things that are happening that are good. And I think sometimes we should look at that and say, well, what kind of church do we want to be? And, and if you look at Thyatira, at least in one sense, you should say, well, we want to be a lot like this. You want to be loving, like a loving people. You want to be welcoming. You want to be servant-minded. You want to be full of faith. Um, you want to be patient. You want to be long-suffering. And you want to be active. Like we want, which, which one of us says, uh, no, I, I don't want to look forward and say, hey, the, the next days are going to be better than the days that I'm currently in. Of course we look forward and think that. Like I want tomorrow to be better than today. I want to be closer to Jesus than I am uh, tomorrow than I am today. I want to be serving him more faithfully tomorrow than I am today. And Thyatira, at least in one sense, seems to be having that. But then, what do we get? Verse 20, we get the, the famous line that almost every church gets, right? But I have this against you. <laughs> so once again, just to reiterate, if Jesus has something against you, it's the worst thing that can be said, right? It's like, man, Eric, Eric pointed this out last Sunday. He's like, it's the reverse Romans 8. You know, it's like, if God be for you, who could be against you? It's like, if God be against you, though, uh, who could be for you? You know, it's like, oh, we don't want to hear these words. And this is what Jesus says. I have this against you. Here it comes that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel. She calls herself a prophetess, and she's teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual morality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual morality. Behold, I'll throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I'll throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. All the, so that all the churches will know that I am he, this is the key, right? Remember the eyes of, flat, eyes of fire, feet of bronze. I am he that searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. There's the knowing and the judging, right? It's like I want all the churches to know me as this. So what's going on here? Well, we have to do two things. We have to know that there's real circumstances that are going on on the ground in Thyatira, and that there's a lot of symbolism in this text, and both of those are true. So most likely there's, something that's going on in the church at Thyatira that Jesus is going to speak to with Old Testament archetypes. So I think what's happening is that Thyatira allowed someone into leadership who was bent away from true biblical teaching and was committed to promoting a false gospel that permitted two things in particular, sexual immorality and false idol worship. And then it was a woman who called herself a prophetess. So there's this woman who comes in, she's probably extremely gifted and she's teaching, but she's teaching and leading the people astray. And, and this woman's probably not named Jezebel, okay, especially, we, we know this because, well, 
for the most part, we don't name our kids Jezebel, right? There's like a certain names that we probably stay away from. Well, that was like triply so back then, right? It's like you, you're, you're close enough to Jezebel to be like, you know, names are important. Let's not go that route, right? And if any of you name Jezebel, it's under the blood, okay? In the name of the Lord, you're okay. But back here, like, they're probably not going to do that. So it's probably not that obvious. I'm, I'm leaving room for it because who knows, maybe it is. Most likely, though, Jesus is speaking about an Old Testament archetype, and he's calling this woman Jezebel so that you could, they could draw a straight line from what this woman is doing and what the Old Testament Jezebel did. Now, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament Jezebel story, then this can kind of fall on, on deaf ears. You're like, okay, I know that's not a great thing. You know, maybe in, in churches or your grandma called you this one time when you were a teenager. You know, you're like, it didn't seem nice. <laughs> no, it's not. But uh, Jezebel has a particular storyline in the Old Testament. She's a Sidonian woman, Jezebel is, and she's a Sidonian woman who became the queen of Israel when she married King Ahab. And upon marrying King Ahab, Jezebel, the Sidonian woman who was really full of idolatry from her pagan nation, brought a lot of pagan idolatry into Israel. And, and in some ways, she also just exacerbated the idolatry problem that was already in Israel at the time. But she didn't stop there. This woman is known for very murderous, treasonous, evil acts. I mean, Jezebel's a ruthless woman. And sometimes we do her story a disservice because what we'll think of when we think of a Jezebel is we only think of the sexual immorality. But, but Jezebel was much more than that, not less than that, much more than that. This woman was not only doing things that are promiscuous, this woman was ruthless. She's a political deviant. She did some things that uh, even her, her husband, the king, was too scared and squirrely to do. She was willing to see people killed, see people murdered, just to get a vineyard at one point for her husband because she saw political power as something she could just wield at her will. And she had no intention of worshiping God. She had no intention of honoring God. She had every intention of exercising power to her own ends. And this is who Jezebel is in the Old Testament. She's, she's extremely, extremely ruthless. And so for Jesus to say that this woman in Thyatira is Jezebel this is no small thing. This is, a, this is even bigger than maybe your southern grandma calling you a Jezebel whenever she found out you were wearing those shorts. You know, like it's, it's a little worse than that. Now, what's actually happening? There's a couple things that Jesus points out. He says that this woman, Jezebel, is taking authority. So she's, she's taking authority in the church and teaching. And she's seducing the people or leading the people into idolatry and sexual morality under the guise. The seduction is she's not leading the people here and letting them know that this is sinful. She's leading the people here and saying it's all good. It's okay. Does this sound familiar? It's not saying, yes, we know this is sinful, but we want to do it anyway. It's saying, no, here's all the reasons why this is not really a big deal and God doesn't really mind this. This is a syncretism that was always in Old Testament Israel. Jezebel did this too. And it's where you basically convince the people that God, Yahweh, is okay with the worship of Baal and his worship being mixed. It's why they simultaneously had the temple in Solomon's day and Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines with their own gods with different palaces where they worshiped their own gods because he had his heart had gone astray. And from the moment Solomon does this, all of Israel does this. And Jezebel's kind of the quintessential queen of it. She brings the most idolatry in. The Bible says in 1 Kings, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord to anger than any king before him. Why? Because he married Jezebel and basically allowed Jezebel. He gave her the green light to bring all of this idolatry in. Now there's an important note here when we read through Thyatira. What is Jesus convicting or, or commanding them to repent of, the church in particular, what, does he, what is he saying, I have this against you? He's not saying, I have this against you, that Jezebel's there, although Jezebel is there and he has this against them. He's saying that you tolerate her. That's an important word. 
Thyatira is being convicted, is being commanded by Jesus to reject this idea of tolerance of this woman Jezebel and saying it's not okay. So let me, let me say this clearly. Out of the guise of love or gentleness or kindness, they're permitting this woman to lead a large portion of the congregation astray in her idolatry and false teaching. And she is clearly not someone who's maybe deceived herself, but she knows full well what she's doing and, and is engaged in it. This idea of tolerance is probably the most countercultural for us today because tolerance is seen only as a virtue and not as a vice. The Bible talks about tolerance in a unique way. It almost, it rarely ever speaks of it, if ever, in a good light. It never speaks of it as a virtue. It mostly speaks of it as a vice. That we tolerate sin is often what the Bible speaks about. That in our own lives and in our family's lives, that we tolerate sin because our hearts are bent away from God towards sin and we tolerate that which is not tolerable to God. Now, the reason I say this is so countercultural is because we have painted God as a very tolerant uh, being because God doesn't actively send down his wrath on us every time that we sin. And thank God for that, right? Because he is tolerant in that sense or else we would all be smoked, right? That'd be the end of it because all of us are sinners in need of grace and it's, it's, we're actively sinners and then we're sometimes sinning unknowingly. And so thank God that he's tolerant in that sense. But it's important to note that the Bible doesn't say that God's tolerant of sin forever, that God actually is storing up, is what the Bible says, storing up wrath for the day of wrath, that he doesn't forget about sins. God doesn't say, well, it wasn't a big deal. It's always a big deal. If we want to know how big of a deal sin is, all we have to do is look to the cross. How big of a deal was it for Jesus? Jesus endured the most indescribable uh, suffering, the most indescribable uh, hardship, and he drank the cup of God's wrath dry. So how serious does God take sin? He takes it as serious as the cross. And so there's really two options that are presented in the scriptures. There's either we believe in Jesus and repent of our sin and Jesus drinks the cup of God's wrath towards us dry or we reject Jesus, don't repent, and then one day that cup's gonna be waiting for us when we stand before King Jesus. And he, he then will hand that one to us, right? Because we've chosen that we'd rather drink it than have him drink it. And Jesus here stands and says, this idea of tolerance that you're carrying on with, it stands in the face of the cross of Christ. And why is that? Well, because tolerance is a neutralizer of repentance when it's handled wrongly. It falsely masquerades as love. It's an anti-gospel. Repentance is you and I are wrong and we are in need of forgiveness. Or let me put it like this. This is another countercultural statement, but I haven't you know, said anything controversial yet, so I'll just go, go on through. You are not a victim, but a villain in the Bible. Now, I'm not saying you've never been victimized. You've been victimized by other villains, but primarily you and I, our character is the villain in the Bible. And by that, I mean Romans chapter three, verse 23, which is just quoting one of the Psalms. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Like the venom of asps is under our lips. No one desires God. No one seeks after God. No, not one. The Bible does not say that there are good, good guys and bad guys, or there's oppressed people and oppressors. The Bible says that there's bad guys, bad girls, and Jesus, and that's it. And then Jesus invites people over onto his side when they recognize their badness and repent and believe in him for goodness. But there's really no two sides of humanity. It's just there's villains, meaning us, and then there's Christ. It's why the story of the cross, we talked about this at Easter, the story of the cross is so unique in that even Jesus' disciples run away from him. Even Peter denies him. All of them are basically setting themselves on the opposite side of good guys so that Jesus can die for all of us bad guys. Now this is important. It's important because if we think that there's this kind of spectrum, which is what we tend to think, we tend to think everything's on a spectrum. God's very binary. There's good and there's evil. Uh, there's male and there's female. 
Um, there's, there's wrath and there's mercy. Um, there, these are just binary things that God, there are those that are perishing and those that are being saved. This is how God operates. He always sees things just very clearly and he doesn't really allow for much muddiness. And that's what Jesus is trying to do here. He says, this woman has stepped in and made everything muddy and I wanna make it clear again. Uh, there's repentance and then there's lies. There's repentance and then there's pride. He says, and I want you to repent. She's refused to repent, I'm calling you to repent. So why is tolerance the anti-gospel? Because where repentance says that you and I are villains and we can, we can repent and Jesus will forgive us and extend grace to us, tolerance says no one's really wrong, God agrees with you where you are, he approves of all your behaviors, you don't need to repent, and in case you think that anybody's wrong, it's probably God that's wrong. <laughs> that's tolerance. Tolerance is like, well, we're really not all that bad, and since you're kind of bad and I'm kind of bad, we get together and our collective bad makes me feel less bad. You guys know what I'm talking about? It's like we build friendships around the people who are maybe closer to as bad as we are, so then it's like, well, at least I don't, if I hang out with someone who's less bad than me, it kind of makes me feel bad, so I don't really like them. It must be because they're judgy and bad. <laughs> you get what I mean? It's really sick. It's really dark, but, you know, Paul speaks of this. He speaks of the ideology of Jezebel in Romans chapter number one. I want to I briefly turn there because I think that he walks through the ideology of Jezebel very clearly when he writes to the church at Rome. And we have to do it quickly because we got a lot of work to do at the back end. But Paul is writing this letter to, to Romans, to the Roman church in Romans chapter one. He has not actually visited this church. Now I want you to think, he's writing this letter, one of the greatest letters ever written, by the way. One of the greatest theological treatises ever written. And Paul writes this before visiting this church. It's going to the center of the Roman empire, the most powerful cultural center at the time full of a lot of pagan darkness, and he's writing this letter to give them an understanding of the Christian worldview. What he says here will be forever until Jesus returns, one of the most succinct and clear diagnoses of the human condition that has ever been written. He's going to tell you everything you need to know about the reason that you do things, say things, act in certain ways, and why I do things, say things, act in certain ways, why we have quarrels with one another, and why we really have quarrels with God. And it really, it's it's gonna sound like common sense and simple, but I need you to know that you are in the minority if you believe this in the world. <laughs> but he's basically gonna line out for us why the teaching of Jezebel leads to death. So this is verse number 18, and I'm just gonna read through seven verses, and I'll kind of try to stop and explain. Paul says this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. He says, number one, there is a God that this is not questionable, it's just an assumed from the Bible, that there's a God and he has moral expectation. Many of us, we think that we have more mental problems, we really have moral problems. We know that which is right, we do that which is wrong, it's a struggle for us internally, and so then we go turn and turn and turn and turn and turn. I'm not saying that there's no mental health problems because I think that those are true. I think that it all stems back from moral issues that happen in our hearts though. The reason that maybe anxiety can be very prevalent is because we're anxious about that which we know is true about us in the world that we live in. There is a God, we've offended that God, we don't live as up to our own values, and so now what do you do when there's an incongruence between what you know to be right and how you know you live? What you know you should say and what you don't say. What you know you shouldn't say and what you do say. So he says there's a God, that God holds wrath against all the unrighteousness of men, meaning that there's a consequence that this, this holy God holds for people. I joked about this a few weeks ago. Why is it that we, we don't like God having wrath except we all accept the fact that we have wrath, right? Some of you, you had wrath on your kids this morning, you know, but God can't have wrath. Only we get to have wrath. We get to be mad at somebody on the roads. God doesn't get to be mad from heaven, right? Even though the stakes are much higher. And he goes on to say that why, why are these people unrighteous? Why do they walk in unrighteousness? Why is wrath being stored up for them? Because they suppress the truth. 
because they suppress the truth. Meaning that there's truth in the world and truth is that which corresponds with the reality that God has created. If you ever wonder what is truth, this is what Pilate was wondering aloud to Jesus as he was staring the truth, the capital T in the face. (laughs) What is truth? Truth is that which corresponds with the reality of that which God has created. The world that you live in has a truth to it and when you live in such a way that ignores that, it's because you suppress the truth in the hopes that you can gain that which you desire. Let's go on. He's going to explain this a little bit more. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Paul is saying that every single one of us are born looking at the created world and knowing intrinsically that it didn't just happenstance, that it wasn't just an accident, that there was a creator of all the things that we see and that it all speaks to this truth that there is a God in the world and that we have a temptation and a tendency to dis- disavow that, to disacknowledge that because then we would be under authority, but we're not interested. He says that although all of humanity knows that there's a God, they don't have an interest in honoring him as God. Also, Paul's going to tell us that they have an inner conscience, that we know that there's something about us that pierces us when we do something that, which is wrong. And what we'd rather say is that, no, you know, if I can just get more human wisdom, if I can go to college, if I can go to sociology and philosophy class, I can learn that really all of morality is a social contract. We agree you know, that this is right and that's wrong. But in, the funny thing is, even still, we have a tinge of guilt in us when we do that which is wrong, that God has said it's wrong, even if we don't think that in our social contract with our buddies that it's wrong. And why? Because Paul says it's because God created you and because you have been born into a world that doesn't acknowledge God as God but still knows that God is God. This is the way he says it in verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. So what's the result of not honoring God as God? This is the result. They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Does that sound familiar? Futile thinking. Really smart people don't have common sense. You ever seen those people? Are we not some of them? Very, very smart, you know, more degrees than Fahrenheit, but they just don't seem to think the most basic things are basically true, right? Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Their hearts are darkened, their minds become futile. All of their thinking is like, is like running on a treadmill. They don't get anywhere closer to the truth, even if they do a whole lot of work. They read tons of books and write tons of articles, and yet you don't get any closer to the reality of humanity or the reality of the world or the reality of God. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. A lot of times when you bring this most common sense, basic understanding, people will say, oh, that's just because you're uneducated, that's just because you're not smart, that's just because you haven't gone to this class or you haven't learned more about the the world. And if you knew more, if you were educated, if you studied more, then you would know that that whole God thing is outdated and really we're progressing. And if we could just get away and just let God die already, then we can progress into the real of humanity. And yet, if you just step back, the more and more that we've rejected God, the more and more we've degraded into looking more like animals and less like human beings. We haven't actually progressed tons. And you might say, well, that's not true, Court. Look at technology. And I would say to you, yes, of course, technology's progressed greatly. But what about humanness? What about your humanity? (laughs) What about the way you relate even with your own spouse when you text them from the other room? (laughs) Right? I'm I'm not casting dispersions. I do it too. I'm wondering why, though. Is it perhaps because as we have progressed in technology, we've actually degraded in our humanness, our being image bearers of God? 
Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for what? Images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. They started worshiping created things and not God, because here's why. You and I were made in the image of God. We have this chasm of worship that needs to be filled. If we refuse to worship God, we're going to worship something. It's not a question of whether, whether or not we're, or if we're worshiping. It's a question of what we're worshiping, because you are worshiping. And so we just turn to the created things because we've dishonored God. Now I want you to watch here. These next two verses are important because it's going to tell you more about Jezebel. Once you've decided that idolatry is the answer, sexual immorality must follow. It always follows because it's the most intimate thing that God's given us as a gift. The the covenant relationship and intimacy between husband and wife, it reflects the gospel in a very unique way. And so therefore, when idolatry comes close on its heels is sexual immorality. Here's what Paul says in verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Why though? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. When you think of Jezebel, I don't want you to think too short of shorts, too low of shirts. I want you to think idolatry that lends itself to sexual morality, worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Any old thing that isn't God that gets the worship is the spirit of Jezebel. And even more so, and even more deeply, and even more important, is that Jezebel encourages that in others and lays that before others and lays stumbling blocks before others. It's not just that Jezebel does it herself. She must have you do it. She needs you to follow. She needs you to approve. She needs you. If you've not seen this in our culture yet, open your eyes. You must approve. It's not just live and let live. You have to agree with me. You have to approve. You have to approve of my lifestyle. You have to be a part of it. And if you don't, then you are who I'm after. This is the spirit of Jezebel. Revelation, this book, ends with the fall of Babylon the Great. Babylon the Great is called a harlot. It's a woman. And she's sitting upon many waters, and there's a great fall for her. And she symbolizes a prostitute. Well, why? Because at the end of the age, what's depicted in the Bible is you have a direct conflict between King Jesus and who's the God of the Bible and sexuality, who's the God of this age. And sexuality dies. Now, you might be thinking, well, we don't do that. You know, we don't, we don't worship sex like that. And I would just say that if you looked at our culture, you might change your mind. This is the aim. Idolatry always leads itself to that because it's a self-worship. And the true church has never been able to maintain friendship with the world, and we have to be reminded about this. Historically, the church has always been faced with the decision. Will we be co-opted into cooperation with the powers of the world through deceitful tolerance, or will we remain faithful to Jesus and his word, even if that's unpopular? I want you to notice that Jesus says that Jezebel's not just a teacher, she's a seductress. Why? Why is it teaching plus seducing that's so important? Well, the Bible says teachers have a major responsibility. God says teachers will be judged more harshly. I've read that a lot of times. I'm scared more every time. If you ever wondered why I say tough things or seem to, it's because I know the judgment's there. It's always looming. I, get, I have to say what God has said. If I try to say what might make you guys like me more, I end up going to offend someone. I'd rather offend you than God because, you know, he has a higher opinion and a lot more power. The church is not the only institution that's preaching weekly. Listen to me. There are many sermons preached every single week, many teachers. The world is full of preachers. There's an ideology that the world encourages, and it defies God. It loathes God, and it longs for you to join in with their worship. it's, It's pulling at your heart saying, join in our song, join in our singing. This is the idea of eating food sacrificed to idols. Come to the table of the world and worship our God. Come to the table of the world and give thanks to our God. And if you won't, then you are, 
you know, you fill in the blank. All the names and dispersions you can be at said that you are. Some of them are even made up words. They weren't even words like five years ago. Now they're new words of dispersions to cast at you. The ideology of the world will always stand at odds with God's word until Jesus returns. So the responsibility of leaders and teachers to speak the truth courageously and compassionately is what is desperately needed in this generation. It's desperately needed for us to be able to clearly, articulately, compassionately, and courageously speak the truth. And this is what Thyatira was struggling to do. And here's why, and I think you can find yourself in Thyatira's shoes. They, they liked this lady. Like, she was nice. They're like, man, I don't, I don't want to be mean to her. I mean, she's like, she's cool. Like, she watched my kids. You know, put yourself in these shoes. Like, I, I, I'm not, I don't want to, like, she said some good things too, though. Have you ever walked through this in your mind? Like, yeah, well, she was off here, but who's not off here? Yeah, she said that, but I mean, she didn't really mean that. Thyatira is struggling because they, they don't want to step out courageously and speak to this woman and speak against what she's teaching because it seems unloving. It seems unkind. It's the very thing they're marked to be. Now, I want to say this before I move on because I think it is important. And I, I have a whole other part of the study that I can't even talk about for the sake of time. But Jezebel's sin is unique in the Old Testament. It's constantly talked about, even if it's not talked about with her name attached to it. And this is her sin. It's impossible to overstate the seriousness with which the Bible takes the act of leading and convincing others to be okay with sin. That's the original sin in the garden. The serpent comes in and convinces Eve it's okay to eat, even though God had said clearly it was not. That's the sin of Jezebel. It's not just that she was also partaking, it's that she convinces others to do it with her. And that God is upset about. Jesus stands against it. He says here, he'll war against her by putting her in a sickbed and he'll war against all of her disciples. He calls them her children. All of your followers, I'm coming against them too. Why? Because he takes seriously misleading leadership, misleading teaching. Now, I want to end here with a couple thoughts, one towards leaders and one particularly to moms. This woman, the typified as Jezebel, she found her way into church leadership and I want to ask the question, why? Like, how does it happen, right? Because if you're thinking about it, you're like, well, why'd they let her, why'd they let her in? Why didn't they just stop her at the doors? If you're honest with yourself, you say, it's a lot easier than you think, isn't it? Because if we're called to be kind and we're called to be loving and we're called to be honest, then we, we want to welcome people. We want to be able to preach the gospel and love people and care about them. And so there's, there's not like this time where we're able to stop someone at the door and say, get on out of here because we recognize that you're the Jezebel. They don't wear a big J on their forehead. So how does this kind of thing happen? Well, number one, it happens because honest people will assess the growing list of needs in the church and then find people that are willing to meet them, and that allows for character to be trumped by capacity or competence. You have a bunch of needs in the church, you need somebody to step in, but nobody's really stepping up, but then the person that is stepping up, be like, oh, maybe I have a couple of questions, but you know what, they can do it, they can do the job well, and they have the capacity to do it, let's put them in there and let's see what happens, and oftentimes that is bad news bears. Or number two, well-meaning people redefine love as tolerance, and this allows a universal requirement of humility and repentance to be subverted. So someone who's unrepentant, and you know they're unrepentant because you've never actually heard them repent, whether it's in home group or at a table or whatever, you say, yeah, but they're really kind and loving, and I want to be really kind and loving to them, so I don't want to talk to them about it because it's awkward. And so then something very basic gets subverted. Or solid Christ-centered leaders relinquish their call to lead. It creates a vacuum. And nature abhors the vacuum. Vacuums are always filled and they get filled by bad leaders. So every impactful Christian leader that was called by Jesus was called to sacrifice at the outset. And sometimes we have a struggle with that call to sacrifice and therefore there's a big open chasm in the church and the wrong person will fill that need. Now, 
I think that it's important that we ask ourselves the question, why does Jesus, of all the analogies, of all the examples, of all the illustrations, why does he use a woman named Jezebel to be the typical, to be the symbol for this kind of false teaching? Because remember in the last sermon, he said he uses Baal, Baal and Balak, he's using men. There's many false teachers that are men in the Bible that he could have used, right? Like we know this. Why does he use Jezebel? Moms, I, I want to speak to you specifically because I think that this could be really helpful and encouraging. I believe Jezebel represents the, the anti-woman or the anti-mother in this text. That God creates women specifically with a design in mind and that Jezebel represents the opposite end of that. If you have like an anti-Christ, right? The opposite of Christ, you have like the anti-woman, the anti-mom. On Mother's Day, I always like to remind women of this. Even if you do not have biological or adopted or foster children right now, you still have the, you can celebrate Mother's Day because you're a woman, because God said to Eve, she is the mother of all of the living just because she's a woman. God has placed this in every single woman's heart at creation when God decided that you would be a female it's because motherhood was on his mind. And motherhood needs to be much greater, much bigger than just having biological children, although it's not at least less, it's not any less than that. So Eve's the mother of all the living. And I want to read to you out of Judges chapter 5. I want to read to you out of verses 6 through 9. It's going to be put up on the screen, but let me give you a little bit of background before you read it. There's a woman, there's a woman in the Old Testament that comes, not ironically, a little bit before Jezebel. And she is an Israelite woman named Deborah. And Deborah is the only female judge that's represented in the book of Judges in the whole Bible. And there's lots of conversations about this, right? You can imagine, right? I'm not even going to touch them, but all these conversations, theological, what does it mean? I want to talk about what at bare minimum it must mean. And that is that God had uniquely called this woman at this time to lead and that all women should look to that and say, oh, I want to, I want to look to mirror that underneath the authority of God. Deborah is born in a time to be the judge of Israel when idolatry ran rampant in the land. And it says that they were coming to Deborah to ask her for guidance and wisdom as idolatry ran rampant in the land and she would give them great wisdom. She would give them great truth. Listen to me. She would lead them to the Lord and not astray. You notice the difference here? Jezebel leads them to sin and away from the Lord. Deborah, in a time of great idolatry, led all the children of Israel to the Lord. Now listen to this. This is called the Song of Deborah. And I want you to focus in on some of the words that are used. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned. It's so violent in Israel that nobody wants to even travel. All the travelers kept to the byways. They, they are basically going in back roads because they don't want to get harmed. The villagers ceased in Israel. Everybody left the cities. They ceased to be, this is Deborah, until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as what? A mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, here's the idolatry, then war was in the gates. This woman knows what's up. When new gods are chosen, the only thing that can result from that is turmoil. The only thing that results from that is sorrow. The only thing that results from that is suffering. She knows this. The battle's at the gates now. Moms, listen to me. If you don't recognize that the battle's at the gates for you in many ways, you need to open your spiritual eyes for your kids. The battle's at the gates when the new gods are chosen. Said, was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? Basically, she's saying, no one's equipped to fight. She's looking around. She's like, hey, war's at the gates. No one has any weapons. So what? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel and who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Now, for the sake of time, here's how the story goes. She calls all of the, all the commanders to herself, and a man named Barak is the general 
of Israel at the time and basically tells her, I'll go, Deborah, but only if you're with me. And she says, go, I'm with you. And the story goes that God uses Barak and the commanders of the armies of the Lord underneath Deborah's leadership in order to basically take out all the idols and they redeem the children of Israel back. Now, why do I use that story? The Spirit of God empowers Deborah in a time of godless idolatry and a lack of courage and valor, and Deborah rises up and she stands for God, and that's a motherly spirit. That is a motherly attribute. Moms, the courageous decision to stand up is a motherly thing to do. Stand up for your kids, stand up for your families, stand in the gates when no one else will. Jezebel's the anti-type of Deborah because she not only refuses to stand against idolatry and evil, she actively encourages it and she abets in the name of tolerance. She says it's all good. We all know that this is a temptation. Moms, isn't it a temptation for you to take a, to take a, take a step back and say, it's all good what's happening culturally. I don't want to be that mom. Anybody? I don't want to be that mom. I want to be loved by my kids. Who doesn't want that? And yet Deborah doesn't mind if she's unloved by Israel as long as she's loved by God. Mothers have been given the single most significant position of influence in the world. Have you ever heard this statement, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world? We've lost this. We've forgotten this. Moms, you have a a singular disposition and a singular responsibility that's above any other that any man could ever have. And I don't mean it's your only responsibility. What I mean is it's unique to you. You're gonna have many, but this one's different. This one's different. God's given you a voice. He's given you strength. He's given you the responsibility. And the woman who takes this knows this weight of responsibility, and she leads her children away from the truth of God for any reason. And that includes, in the name of loving them, is rebuked strongly by Jesus. This is the spirit of Jezebel, not sultriness. I want you to understand, when you hear the spirit of Jezebel, don't think dressing wrongly. Think leading children, leading the next generation, leading people astray. Because leading looks like choosing to reject all the legitimate reasons that you shouldn't stand in the gap and saying, I will stand and be with the Lord no matter what. I know there's a lot of reasons why you might not be able to do that. There's nowhere to lead. There's no place for my gifts. I don't have time. I'm not well equipped. I have too much work. I have too much drama. I already have enough responsibility. There's probably plenty of reasons. But I want to say this to moms, and I just want to say well, to, to men as well. The call to lead here is obvious because of Jesus's promise at the end to Thyatira. Listen to what he promises at the end here to Thyatira. So he's talked about bad leadership and he's talked about the results of bad leadership. And then he's going to tell them, but if you endure, here's what I promise you. Starting in verse number 24, to the rest of you in Thyatira who don't hold to this teaching, you've not learned what some people call the deep things of Satan to you, I say, and I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come and to the one who conquers, check this out, and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. Jesus says, I will give those who stand faithfully leadership even as God has given me leadership, authority even as God has given me authority. Jesus is looking for leaders in the church that simply want to mirror his leadership, not try to take leadership for their own means and own ends. That's what it means to lead. What it means to lead as a Christian is to follow Jesus faithfully. There are no good leaders that aren't first good followers, namely of Christ Jesus. And this is a great lesson for us to remember as parents because ultimately you are simultaneously leading your children and you're being led by who? If you say, I'm not led by anybody, I'm just a leader, you're a fool. You are led by someone. Who is it? 
Jezebel had a great, great sermons. She was kind. She was, it's why sedu- seduction is seduction. It is very difficult to reject. Nonetheless, Jesus stands. And I want to say one way that Jesus combats Jezebel is not just by sh- a show of force, but by a show of influence. Jesus is more attractive than her. <laughs> Jesus actually draws us in in a unique way with the truth and not falsehoods. I'll close with this as a thought. At the end of the day, you might not like hearing someone who tells you the truth, but deep down when you go to bed at night, you know that that person's more trustworthy than the one who flattered you. (laughs) And it attracts you to that friendship, even if you don't like it that much. Jesus is the same way. You might not initially want to follow this guy because he's going to tell you what you don't want to hear, but deep down you know that what you don't want to hear is exactly what you need to hear, and you want it, even if you're unwilling to admit it. Jesus is the only one who leads us to life. Jesus is the only one who leads us to grace. And Jesus is the only one who can empower you with the courage to stand in the face of falsehood. And so this morning, what my encouragement is to you is, let's lay ourselves at the feet of Jesus and say, Jesus, you're the king. You lead us. We don't, we don't lead you. We don't get to decide. Give us the courage to both identify that which is deceptive and lead the next generation in truth and in life. If you'll stand to your feet, I'll pray for us. Father, there's, there's lots to be said. I want to be discerning. And so my prayer, I want to start with all the moms in the room and really all the women in the room, God. Would you now, would you open their hearts to see that which you've called them to uniquely, the influence they have, the, the calling and the command that they have from you, that you will not only command them, but you will empower them for that which you command. You'll equip them for it. And so I ask Holy Spirit that they would leave out of here feeling that not just a burden and a weight, but an overwhelming sense of gratitude that you will carry them. God, they they often have a thankless role. They often do thankless things. They often do things that no one else sees. Jesus, would you remind them that you are the one who sees, you're the one who knows, and that you love them. And then, Father, for, for all of us in the room, I pray for that spirit of leadership that would withstand the spirit of Jezebel here. Because, Lord Jesus, that spirit of leadership is the spirit of Christ. So, Lord Jesus, would you give us great courage, great discernment? We do, we do want to do everything in love, Lord, but help us to define love as you would define it. And, Lord, help us also to, to worship you truly and freely with our own hearts. For those under the sound of my voice who don't yet know you, or have not chosen to follow you, my God, would you make yourself, not because you have to, but because you delight in doing so, would you show yourself as faithful now? Draw them to yourself, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.